Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his, del- his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. O that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Balhamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Just a little warning that uh, your nose is like a tower of Lebanon is not 
highly recommended as a chat-up line. But everybody wants to be loved, and even those who have had a bad experience of love, or maybe feel they've never been loved, know at least what it is to want to be loved. I have the extraordinary privilege of coming from a home where even today as I return to visit my 87-year-old mother, as I have this week, I find that I'm in the company of one who loves me. It's a wonderful experience. To experience unconditional and unreserved, exclusive, all-encompassing, intimate and accepting love. Do you know it's genuinely liberating? To be loved is to be secure. To be loved is to be happy in one sense, given that we're relational beings. To be loved is to be whole. To be loved is to be free. And at least one key aspect of this poem that we've been studying for three weeks is to reestablish what it means to be loved. Particularly in a culture where there's been a total collapse of understanding of God's love, and therefore in an age of inevitable insecurity and uh, enslavement, the Song of Songs was written in order to reestablish a proper definition of genuine love and in, to in able its reader to pursue love in a safe way. And today we're going to look at these final couple of chapters. It's much, much more like a kind of standard work-through teaching of a passage like we are used to. And we're going to see a love like this. This is what true love looks like. You're going to see that there are two ways to love. There's another way, not a love like this. There's another way, and it's not a good way. And finally, this is where the the drive comes at the end, a lover like no other. My aim is that we grasp that we are loved more deeply than we could ever have imagined. To realize that God loves you and that there is a love like this for you, whoever you are. And that in discovering this love of God who loves you with an intimacy and an intensity that you will never find in all the loves held out to us in this world. To discover this love is to find security and joy and completion and intimacy and liberty. So it's a big, big agenda we've got. And chapter seven, verse nine through to eight, seven, see one of the final presentations of true love with apologies to Faith Evans. I've given this, uh, great song by the way, I've given this the title, uh, A Love You're looking completely nonplussed. Anyway, there you go. Uh, With apologies to Faith Evans, a love like this. You're going to see it's intimate, it's secure, it's exclusive. It's intimate, verses 9 through 13. One final time, the beloved woman invites her lover to explore her love. And the context really is just the two of them. Look at verse 10. I am my beloved and his desire is for me. And she makes an invitation. Come, my beloved, in verse 11. Let's go out into the fields. Let's go early to the vineyards. And then, at the end of verse 12, there, I will give you my love. It's unreserved and willing and intimate. It's also secure. This love that's being celebrated here is celebrated by the whole community, so everybody respects it and honors it, this love. And the lover brings her beloved to her mother's house. She mentions it a couple of times, her mother, there in verse 1, and then verse 2, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. 
And it's a picture of deep security alongside the intimacy. And then once again, we have for the third time this refrain, I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir up, don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And then in verse five, we've had this before, Who is this coming out of the wilderness? But previously it was Solomon with his love train, his kind of love island expression of love. And this time it's just her and her beloved. Who is this coming up out of the wilderness? Leaning on her beloved. Just the two of them. And so it's a secure love, but it's also, I mean, it's profoundly exclusive. The only time love is actually kind of explored other than a straight description, is there in verses six and seven. And people have described this as the most memorable and intense piece of the whole book. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy fierce as the grave, it flashes or flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So everywhere else in the book, love is described. Here it is analyzed. And love burns, love flashes. It's unquenchable. Uh, It's priceless. It's worth more than your mortgage. Person, if somebody just said, oh, I'll give you the value of my house, you'd be despised for it because love is so precious. And above all, uh, love love, uh, doesn't perish. It's extraordinarily powerful. Love is as strong as death. But do you see at the beginning of verse 6, set me as a seal upon your heart and a seal upon your arm. Seal was a mark of belonging, a mark of commitment. And she is asking her lover that he recognize publicly and permanently, internally on the heart and externally on the arm, that the two of them, just the two of them, belong together. And this is the love that the Bible recognizes up front in Genesis 2 as the love of marriage. It's the only place for safe sex. One man, one woman, till death us two part, intimate, secure, and exclusive. So a couple of comments about a love like this. And the first comes from my mother, who has been reading the Song of Songs alongside us, aged 87, and thoroughly enjoying it. And she said to me, well, darling, it's a love poem, isn't it? Which I thought was thoroughly enlightened of her. Uh, and she said, I've read it alongside, uh, alongside everybody else. And, and, and it's a love poem. And then she said this. Isn't it interesting that it's, what, two, 3,000 years old? 3,000 years, nearly, to between two and 3,000. And all the issues are just the same as the issues we face today. Now, people spend three years getting a PhD to write that kind of thing, so I've ordered, offered her an honorary PhD from St. Helen's Church. But somebody else said this, isn't it good that we have this poem? And that this poem is in the Bible because it expresses the deepest emotions and the intense, powerful experiences of us all. And if we didn't have this poem, then when we had those experiences, we'd think there might be something slightly odd, or what do we do with them? But actually, this poem is showing us that this is one of God's good gifts, and it's a a great thing. And isn't it good that it's poetry, said somebody else, 
because actually an 11-year-old can read it and not quite understand it. And I sat behind the youth group at the uh, 6 o'clock, and they've been nudging each other like, you know, uh, people in uh, whatever, nudging and winking at one another as they've gone through it. So they're beginning to understand it, and then us as adults can read it, and there's no watershed. Isn't it good that it's poetry? But as I've read it, I've thought to myself, the author is wanting to press the reset. Take us all the way back to the factory settings, if you like. To go back to Genesis 2. And in a culture that has abandoned biblical love, woe betide a culture that does that, it will quickly go back to the Stone Age. In a culture that has abandoned biblical love, isn't it wonderful to have this beautiful, intimate, secure, exclusive love celebrated again. So a love like this. And then there's two ways to love. The second point we take from verses 8 through 10 of chapter 8. In verses 8 and 9, we have some others, possibly her brothers, but not necessarily her brothers. They reflect on the power of love. And they suggest that if love is so precious, then it should be guarded. Verse 9, if she is a wall, our little sister, who has no breasts, if she's a wall, we'll build on her a battlement of silver. That is, we will protect her, but make her look beautiful. And if she's a door, we'll enclose her, but with precious boards of cedar. Now, my reading of these verses is that the brothers or the others, as they discuss their sibling sisters, are overprotective. It's almost as if they remove the right of personal authority or autonomy from the woman. Because she replies in verse 10, I was a wall. My breasts were like towers. I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. And my reckoning is that societies do overreact in this way in the face of the abuse of love. It may well be that the abuses of Hollywood, which is thoroughly damaging and abusive to men and women in its portrayal of bad love, which it portrays regularly, and the abuses of the entertainment industry in general and the sexual revolution of the 1960s will result in a, a counter-reaction, which will be essentially lock up your daughters. So we see in Islam... And often that's what's happened in cultures. Gross success, damage, appalling abuse, lock up your daughters. And actually this poem doesn't allow for that. But in verses 10 to 12, the woman then reflects on her personal experience that comes from her own autonomy over her own sexuality. And I'm happy to speak more about this in the question time. But in verse 10, she insists that she did preserve her love for just one other. I was a wall. My breasts were like towers. I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Maybe she had been sold in some way or even volunteered from a misguided understanding of the dream of Solomon's harem. And she'd gone into the harem and then realize the folly. I mean, Love Island works like that, doesn't it, a bit? You have this abusive love held up. Everybody kind of gloats at it and think, oh, that would be wonderful. And then the damage. And then the damage. And, and many a young girl has done that. But whether she was sold into it or gave herself up to it, she came to her senses. 
And it, she, she seems to have come to her senses before Solomon had his ghastly way with her. And so, I was a wall. And then verse 11 reflects on Solomon's harem. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hammon. He let out the vineyard to keep as each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. And the vineyard could refer to a physical vineyard, but all the way through, vineyards have been about sexuality. And the fact that there appear to be numerous visitors, a thousand pieces of silver, mirrors the number of wives and concubines Solomon had, and the fact that she contrasts her exclusive intimate love with Solomon's vineyard persuades me that she is wanting to portray the horrors of a thousand objectified sexual objects in the harem of Solomon. How ghastly. Her love is hers alone. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, you can have your thousand. And the keepers of fruit, 200. To me, this suggests that possibly Solomon even allowed others into the harem. Doesn't it suggest that? They brought their thousand pieces of silver, almost as if he kind of let it out in some way. And so it is truly a horrific picture almost of sexual slavery. This is Tinder. This is the one-night stand. This is the sex bar. This is the consensual love of love outside marriage when it's one relationship after another relationship after another. This is the serial adulterous monogamy of Boris or Mick Jagger or Rod Stewart. And the kind of love Celebrated by Love Island, so aptly named Love Island, totally isolated. I wish it was called Love Desert Island, because that's what it is. The name of the vineyard is also instructive, Baal Hammon. Nobody knows where Baal Hammon is, probably a fictitious place. But the fact that it's Baal-centered suggests that it's not only a place of industrial adultery, but also of idolatry. And that always happens in the Bible when you abandon the God of faithfulness, exclusivity, and intimate love, and you go to worship other gods, always dangerous sex and idolatry and adultery go hand in hand. Listen to this description of Solomon back in 1 Kings 11. King Solomon loved many foreign wives alongside the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, Sidonite, and Hittite, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. When Solomon's old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father." So there's a love like this, and there are two ways to love. And we've said a lot about this, so I'm not going to say any more. The deep insecurity of sexual love outside of marriage, the psychological, even the physical damage of love, the loneliness of it, ultimately. All of us want to be loved, to be loved exclusively. But you can't take something as precious 
as this sort of love and hitch it up with one person for six months and another for six years and another for three months and another for 10 years without doing deep personal damage, cheapening it and yourself. And you can begin to see people realizing that. I've got a news feed. The sexual counter-revolution was on the news feed this week. Who wants to be a stripper? Porn will destroy you. Prisoners of sex. The ugliness of sex outside marriage. So finally, we move from the cheap counterfeit and we move back to there is a lover like no other, with apologies to Flex and the Handsome Boys Club. Under this point, I want to encourage a cautious and a controlled reading of the Song of Songs, suggesting that though it is a song about love and a song about human love, a love like this, and a song warning us about the danger of the other kind of love, Placed in the Bible as it is, given the place where it is in the Bible, this song encourages the reader to re-engage in a search for a divine love and a lover who loves like no other. And let me explain it up front what I'm hoping should happen. I think the writer wants us, I think the writer wants us to see how much we're loved. And I think the writer wants us to delight in the love of Jesus and seek him and prize it deeply. So I made the point in week one that over the history of this song's interpretation, a number have sought to read sex and human love out of the song. Those who had hangouts about, hang-ups about sex did so. Particularly, Oregon in the second and third century is reported to have castrated himself. Jerome in the fourth and fifth century is reported to have been in the habit of throwing himself into a thorn bush every time he felt a lustful thought. Well, we're all sexual sinners, and all of us have spent a lot of time in the thorns. It's no surprise that such as those have fled the kind of reading we've put on the song over the last couple of weeks. And so, amongst other things, rather than just read it as the poetry or description of love, for example, the two breasts of the woman are the two testaments, left breast the old, right breast the new. The sachet of myrrh between the breasts of the woman is Jesus. The watchmen in the song are the church leaders. And the wine is the teaching of the law, and the milk, the teaching of Jesus. Now, you can understand why people might want to do that, both from the point of view of avoiding putting lustful thoughts into people's heads. Oh, we didn't dare do that. But also because in the Bible, the church is presented as the bride of Christ. And so God and Christ are presented as bridegroom in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 54, Jeremiah 2, uh, Hosea, Ephesians 5, and the book of Revelation. Furthermore, in the Bible, the king, the Messiah, is presented as holding a wedding feast for his bride and as being the ideal groom, Psalm 45. So you can really understand why the likes of Oregon and Jerome, who have adopted a symbolic reading for their concerns about putting the idea of sex into people's minds might have rushed to that kind of reading. The trouble with it is there's absolutely no control. You can make it say whatever you want. Bernard of Clairvaux, an abbot in the 12th century in Burgundy, in France, preached 86 sermons on the Song of Songs and only got as far as chapter 3, verse 1. 
That's two verses a week, which would take us into Christmas 2023, just to get to chapter three and July 2024 to complete the book. And I sense we might have exhausted some of the images that we might have wanted to find. More recently, people have sought to read it, obviously, once again, as being just about human sex and love. And that's good, I think. But there must be more to it than that, because if it's in the Bible, and because it's where it is in the Bible, there has to be more to it, because in the Bible, marriage, love, intimacy, one man, one woman, is ultimately about Christ and the church. Now, the seriousness of Solomon's adultery and idolatry should never be overestimated, can never be overestimated. Solomon was the king of Israel. His reign was the pinnacle of Israel's existence to date. God's king Solomon was meant to be a model and a blessing to all the nations around. And Solomon was intended to be the one above all others who evidenced the beauty of God's reign and the intimacy of God's love for his people. Of course, in certain ways, Solomon did that. His wisdom, his wealth, his weaponry. The whole world came to see Solomon. It really was the United Nations under Solomon. Even the Queen of Sheba came. And she, when she left, is described as having no more breath left in her. I like to think she said, you take my breath away to Solomon. And so everything in Solomon's time appeared to have been realized of all the great promises of God, and yet, and yet, and yet. He had a vineyard in Baal with a thousand wives and concubines. And it was Baal They led him away into adultery, and his adultery produced more idolatry, and his idolatry multiplied up his adultery, as is always the way when you turn away from God. He was not faithful. Now, I can't think of any deeply detailed analysis or critique of Solomon's failure in this area, other than the Song of Songs, which, if the Song of Songs wasn't here, would produce, I think, something of a problem for us, because Solomon is depicted as being the pinnacle and yet idolatry and adultery. Personally, I'm not persuaded that the song was actually necessarily written by Solomon. The title at the beginning does not demand it. It could equally read the song concerning Solomon or even written about Solomon or to Solomon. And so the song presses the reset and takes us back to the garden and forces us to look for a king who really will fulfill the promises of God for intimacy, security, and exclusivity, a love like this. Oh, says somebody, what do we do about the sex? And we do with the sex precisely what we do with the sex in Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25, which is about Christ as the bridegroom of his church. You know, there won't be sex in heaven, We won't be making babies in heaven. Sex is for personal intimacy and for reproduction on the earth. And so all the poetry of the song forces us to look 
in the light of the failure of Solomon, beyond Solomon, to a greater king who will actually succeed in the areas where Solomon so hopelessly failed and love us and love us as God promises one will, as he does. And I think verses 13 and 14 of chapter 8 deliberately take us back to this kind of unfulfilled love. There she is calling to him again, and there he is longing for her again, looking forward, looking forward, looking forward. Well, it won't be a surprise to you if you're here visiting that Christians would hold that in Jesus Christ we find such perfect love. He loved you to death. He went to the cross for you. He knew every single piece of your backstory. He died to purchase you for himself. He knew what he was getting when he paid the price. He loves you that much. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was utterly pure, totally safe with women, respected and admired by men. And on the cross, he showed you the price of his love. It's beauty. It's unquenchable nature, it's commitment, it's intimacy. And I wonder whether this might really help us as a church as we think about Jesus. There's this little book called Jesus, Lover of My Soul, written by Julian Hardiman, which is a sermon series that he did up at Eden Church. I went and heard him speak. Um, just a few weeks ago, and it was a very excellent couple of days listening to what he had to say. He wasn't speaking on this book, but this book was strongly advertised by others. And he takes this reading, almost exclusively, actually, of Jesus, and, and saying, you know, you really are free to read it about Jesus and his love for the church and our response in love to him. There is a private walled garden, which is his alone. Nothing needs spoil our meeting with him there. It is a place kept for him, for his delight and ours with him. There we can know and feel his delight in us. We can find fresh joy in the sheer beauty of his person and the sweetness of his salvation. Nothing can take that away. He quotes one or two old hymns which express this so well. Jesus, lover of my soul. We're not going to sing this tonight. Um, the language is just a tiny bit quaint. But we're going to sing another couple of fantastic songs which express the same sort of thing. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my Savior, hide till the storm of life is past, safe into the haven guide. Oh, receive my soul at last. Other refuge have I now. It's really intimate. Speaking to Jesus as the lover of my soul. All of us know at least what it is to want to be loved. As I say, I have the benefit of coming from a home where I've always known what it is to be loved. 
It's a wonderful thing. To be loved is to be secure. As relational beings who find our relationships outside of ourselves and so much of identity outside of ourselves, to be loved is to be free, to know that I'm really loved for who I am. In spite of all that I've done, to be loved like that is liberating. To be loved is, in a sense, to be whole. All human love is flawed. Jesus, lover of my soul. I met um, a group outside here. They're putting up this new uh, um, piece of sculpture, which is much, much less monstrous than the last one was there. And I was saying, what a relief we got rid of the old one. Suddenly we thought, maybe actually it's the same person who did both of them. And then I just did a quick check. And so anyway, a couple of them said, oh, let's go into the church. They came in, I had a walk around. Not, never met them before, but we had a little wander around. And um, I was talking about the work here. And said, well, how come all people come here? I said, well, we talk about Jesus. And, it won- and it's so wonderful to know that we're loved by God. Now, Lisa said this to me. She said, um, there is so much out there about attracting positive energy from the universe. You're talking about the same sort of things, but you're talking about Jesus. When I was a kid, they used to talk about those sort of things. But now they just attribute it to attracting it from the universe, whatever it happens to be. In Jesus, you find one who is personal, who is committed, who has died for you, and who wants an intimate relationship with you. Here is Julian again. There is the assurance of a love that will never let us go. There is the movement towards us of a lover who meets us in a secret place that cannot be taken away. There is, at the deepest depth of our souls, safety. There is one who will take us back again and again when we're unfaithful to him. There is the promise of protection and security. There is the delight of Christ himself in us. He delights in you. There is a foretaste of the ultimate wedding feast at the end of time and the rock's solid guarantee of his coming again. And that's where I I want us to to finish. Because the bridegroom and the bride image finds its culmination in heaven, in the new creation, where we will be with the Lord Jesus as the one who loves us, loving him perfectly for eternity. This morning, one of my dearest friends and one of the bravest and best Christian workers of my generation died just a couple of years older than me. He used to do Luke's job, Luke Cornelius's job here in this church in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Somebody wrote to me this afternoon and said this, I hope everybody remembers above all how powerfully and effectively God used Justin to reach to the lives of so many of us with his word. He really was a wonderful friend, a, one of the bravest of men, and a great gospel worker. He died at five o'clock this morning.
his wife sent this message. Justin went home early. Uh, Justin went home early this morning. All his struggle and pain over at last. Safe in the embrace of his Lord and Savior. Now, if you've got that, you are secure. Nothing can take it away from you. You are loved. It's tempting to apply this, isn't it, to all of us in our different, different relational situations. I think that would be very unfortunate at this stage. The main point of application this week is to us, do we delight in Jesus? Do we seek after Jesus the way the bride seeks after Christ? Do we rejoice in spending time alone with him? Do we find joy in him? Do we say that? When was the last time you said to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I love you? Do you know that you're loved by him? Because if you do, and if you are, then many of these other issues, which are so complicated, and they're there in every generation, they won't necessarily disappear. But they're a lot easier to deal with, can I put it like that? with Jesus, lover of my soul.